Semantics with Robohub, the podcast for news and views on robotics. Hi, and welcome to this latest episode of the Robohub podcast. Today is all about semantics, ensuring shared meaning and understanding of objects so that robots and other artificial agents can truly understand human instruction. As humans and robots start to exist side by side and interact more and more, the need for robots and other artificial agents to understand human instruction properly has increased. Our interviewer, Audro, met up with Professor Amy Lutfi from the AASS Research Centre, Department of Science and Technology at Orebro University in Sweden. Her research focuses on machine olfaction, knowledge representation and reasoning for sensor systems, as well as human-robot interaction and social robotic telepresence. She spoke to Audro about her work using semantics to improve robotic systems, including how to tackle the grounding problem and using representation learning. Hi, welcome to Robots Podcast. Hi. Would you introduce yourself? So my name is Amy Lutfi. I'm a professor uh, at Utterbrew University, uh, and my area of research is AI and robotics. Mm -hmm. Would you tell me about what motivates your work? Well, I think when it comes down to it, what I'm very interested in and the reason why I like so much the integration of AI and robotics is the process of developing these intelligent systems reveals a lot about ourselves. Uh, so often people say that I study robotics, but I feel like I study humans. Uh, and when I want to make robotics really intelligent, uh, so make intelligent robots, I find that you have to look at humans and figure out, well, how do we solve these problems? Okay, and how do we solve these problems? Well, there are, of course, many different types of problems that you're looking at in robots. But when it comes to problems that require some type of interaction with other humans or other agents, if we want to call them that, uh, we rely a lot on language, right? We rely a lot on the fact that we can communicate to each other. And we communicate to each other not in terms of our perceptions, but actually we can communicate in, into, with each other sometimes in, in higher higher levels of abstraction. Uh, and we can convey to each other our intentions. We can explain to one another what is actually happening in our environment. And what's all very interesting is that we can hopefully sort out misunderstandings. Mm -hmm. Now, how do you formalize this? Well, what we work on is this ability of, of using knowledge representation and reasoning mm -hmm. uh, in order to capture information about a domain, so in order to capture information about the environment around you. Okay. Um, and this, this is at a conceptual level, right? So you're basically using concepts and their relations to other concepts. Uh, and this is well-known techniques. Uh, what we do is we ground that into something real. Mm -hmm. So we ground that into perception. Okay, and how do you ground it? Well, we have different ways of, of looking at the grounding problem. Um, one way to look at the ground grounding... Ground it, you mean make it something you can implement on a robot? Right. So, um, so grounding is basically the problem of connecting symbols to something other than symbols. So this is Stephen Harnad, who 
who mm -hmm. made this definition. So the intention is, is that it should be, you can have what we call physical symbol grounding, so grounded to um, uh, physical objects or physical perception or grounded to something else. Mm -hmm. uh, it's the physical symbol grounding that's interesting. Now, research in physical symbol grounding when it comes to robotics is a lot about how you can automatically bootstrap language. I'm not so much interested in that. What does that mean? It basically means that I say a bunch of words, yep. you look at a scene, and you figure out which words correspond to which mm, object. It's just a mapping. Okay. Exactly. Um, with very, very little supervision from me. Yes. Uh, and I'm a bit more of a... a take a more engineering approach to it. Uh, I think... Where we take some of our knowledge and encode that in it? Right. And also we, we have developed routines for object recognition, oh, object tracking. Mm -hmm. So I, I'm not so much interested in how you can make the mapping when I can simply ask Google, what am I looking at? Mm -hmm. But still... If I'm looking at an object, that object's going to change in both space and time. And I need to keep that correspondence. I need to maintain how that object changes so that I can eventually do things with the object, like pick it up, uh, move it, simple tasks that I would like to do. And if I have two objects that are identical, I have to keep two separate notions of them in my mind. Right, the bottle to the left or the bottle to the right. Mm -hmm. And when I can do that, so when I can maintain in what we call an, an anchoring between this bottle and this actual physical pro bottle with all its properties, mm -hmm. then I can start to reason about these objects. And reasoning about the objects means that I can infer things about what the objects are for, mm -hmm. um, how the objects could be used, maybe additional properties of the object that well, bottles are containers, so understand some affordances. Yep. Um, now, of course, I can also learn all of that, but like I said before, you have this available. You have these technologies available, so let's use them. And when I can reason about the objects, then Partly I can understand what you want me to do with them when you express something like, mm, yeah, go get me down. something to drink or Definitely. get me a container. Then I can look around and say, well, hey, there's that bottle and that fulfills the requirement. So here mm -hmm. you go. But also I can use this reasoning. And this is the part I'm really interested in. I can use these reasoning to help me out when my perception is not perfect. And this happens a lot in robotics, and it happens a lot in intelligent systems. Because the problem is, is that in the ideal world, I should be able to recognize that bottle without any problems. But there's problems with sensing, there's mm -hmm. uncertainty, there's context that's hard to understand. Definitely. So I'm not maybe sure that that's a bottle. But if I see, for example, you apply an action to it and I understand okay this is a pouring action and I can recognize that then I can reason about the fact well if I maybe go with an initial hypothesis that this is a pen and I know that you can't pour pens then I will disregard that hypothesis and maybe think it's a bottle instead mm -hmm. so the idea that I'd like to explore in my research is um, what I call this tighter connection between a symbolic system that uses AI 
mm-hmm. and the perception and the action that robots need and use. Hmm. Uh, so we're not just using the symbolic system to give us sort of high-level tasks or to just communicate. We're really exploiting semantics to improve the robot. Hmm. Okay, now semantics. Hmm. What does it mean? So for me, there are... A bunch of definitions. Because yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 I don't I have a formal definition <laughs> up my sleeve. But semantics is a couple of things. So s- semantics really implies meaning. I mean, that's the semantics of semantics. There should be <laughs> some meaning, right? And uh, I think that that meaning has to be shared. So uh, for something to have semantics, it, it should be a shared meaning between between agents. So in my context, between human and robot. So the robot shouldn't be using these arbitrary symbols. Mm-hmm. It has to be using something meaningful. Yeah. And the robot also should have a grounding. It should, it should be connected to the real world for it because robots are situated in the real world, for it to be able to then act upon it and answer queries about it for dealing with objects. Mm-hmm. Okay, but then how do, you, how do you do this grounding? How do you make it go from symbol to physical? Mm. So um, there are different ways to do it. Uh, we use something called anchoring, which isn't actually solving the grounding problem. Uh, mm-hmm. Anchoring solves the object maintenance problem. Okay, what do you mean object maintenance? Uh, so object maintenance, is, so what, what anchoring does is it collects a set of tools um, mm-hmm. to do object recognition. So I can say bottle uh, to be able to do tracking. So I can say bottle is at position X and Y. Yeah. Uh, to be able to extract features like in my talk, I talked about olfaction, so bottle smells like coffee. Yep. Uh, so it, it uses techniques that allow us to do basic pattern recognition. Yeah. But what anchoring does is it keeps all of these features both at a perceptual level and at a semantic level. Mm-hmm. And as that object moves in time, in space, constantly updating. Mm. I'm constantly keeping track. Yeah. And I can do this with literally hundreds of thousands of objects. Yes. And that's more or less what we do. Gotcha. So an example, you'd have the bottle, it smells like coffee, it's warm, Mm -hmm. and it's in this location. Yes. And then if I block it out with my hand or something, then you say it's probably still there. Right. So to say that it's probably still there, anchoring won't solve that. No? Uh, Anchoring will just say, I don't see the bottle anymore. Okay. Um... And the last time I saw it, it was on the table. Yes. But I don't know where it is. <laughs> yeah, I swear I don't know. Yeah. yeah. Uh, to be able to solve the problem of, I've locked it with my hand, where's the bottle? Mm-hmm. Then you need the reasoning. Mm. And then you have to understand things. Okay, so like, you have the semantics and that's the symbols. It, and you have the reasoning and that's what's coming next. Exactly. So you have the, well, you could say this, you have the symbols. Mm-hmm. And then when you start to reason upon them, and they are grounded in the real world, then you have your semantics. Oh, nice. Okay. And then how, can you give me an example, kind of, with this? Well, I think you gave a a great example when you occlude something. Yep. But occluding can still be somewhat handy, because occluding means that, you know, you you block it, it, you can't quite see it. But what if you do more complicated things with objects, like you put one object inside another, Yeah. and then you take that that second object and you move it far Mm -hmm. away. 
So you pack things inside other things. That's a little bit more complicated. Or the example of the shell game. You know, you have yes. three cups and a ball, and you put the ball under one of the cups, and then you move things around. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you have to really figure out a couple of things. One, that objects don't magically disappear. They don't mm-hmm. evaporate. And the second thing is that when the cup moves, uh, the ball moves. And so you, co- you code this physical knowledge into the robot, and then you use it with the representations. That's correct. Uh, I see. Okay. Now... You talked. I saw your keynote, mm-hmm. and in your keynote, you gave an example using a drone to fly from one location to another. Right. Would you tell me a bit about that? Yeah. So Just the setup. Yeah. Okay. So what we wanted to explore was beyond uh, these tabletop scenarios of dealing with bottles and boxes and balls and these things. We wanted to see if we could really scale up. So what we did is we started looking at satellite images, mm-hmm. and we started looking at objects inside a, in these images. And yes. this is very useful, particularly when you have disaster scenarios. So flooding, tsunami, all of a sudden objects mm. change a lot. And you want to understand what's happening. What objects do I have? Where do I have the buildings? Where do I have the shelters? Where do I have um, the houses, mm-hmm. the roads, and so on? And they may, some may be underwater, some not. <laughs> so, you know, some people always ask me, well, why don't you just use Google Maps? But we want to deal with dynamic situations. Yep. So we have these images um, and we're able to anchor every object entity that we see. Uh, what does that mean? And every it basically building, means that we tree. make a simple percept correspondence between yep. objects. So we know tree position here mm-hmm. has these features and this is tree one yes. or tree 40 and so on yeah. so so we have hundreds of thousands of objects you can imagine in a city how many objects you have is this why you chose maps yes oh. that's why we chose satellite images yeah and uh what we then wanted to see was again how can we reason to improve not just perception but also action mm-hmm. And the action here is to make, not make a a path, but to find a path for a drone or a UAV to fly, Mm -hmm. given semantic constraints. Uh, And if you give some semantic constraints, like, okay, we want you to fly from point A to point B, but don't fly over schools. Mm -hmm. Uh, you'll find that you'll be able to solve this relatively easily. Uh, But there are situations where the pathfinding algorithm just doesn't, is not able to return a result in reasonable time. Mm. And what we want to do is we want to take it one step further and say, well, can we use our semantic understanding Mm -hmm. to help it out? So the scenario we explored was a scenario where you have um, a lot of water around you. Mm -hmm. We actually took the city of Stockholm because the city of Stockholm has a lot of water around it. Mm -hmm. And we said to our drone, you can fly, but you can never fly over water because if you fly over water, there's a risk we'll lose it. We don't want to do that. So you have to find a path where you fly between point A and point B, but not over water. Mm -hmm. And there's so much water and there's very, very, very few options for the for the drone to go, mm-hmm. that the 
pathfinding algorithm actually gets stuck. It times out before it finds an admissible path. Mm. And we thought, well, can we reason more? And so what we did is we looked at our ontology and we asked the ontology, help us. We didn't really talk about ontology. No, actually, really yeah. I'll, t- I'll say about ontologies okay. in a bit. But so a map of relationships. Exactly. So what ontologies do is basically take concepts like chair, office, table, mm-hmm. and is able to also express the relations between those concepts. Mm-hmm. So office contains a table and a chair, yep. something like that. And it also contains properties, is that correct? That's right. And all of this is machine-readable, yes. which, which is very nice because then um, you, know, the, you can compute with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if we have this ontology that is also representing a city, like the fact that bridges connect two land masses, yeah. a simple fact that most of us know, uh, we can ask the ontology if it can help us in the pathfinding. And instead of the pathfinding algorithm searching everywhere, mm-hmm. and this is, of course, a drone, so in three, 3D, mm-hmm. uh, what we allow the ontology to do is to constrain the pathfinding algorithm. So it only actually searches in places that are viable, and this is and over bridges. Mm-hmm. And then when you start searching over the bridges, you can constrain your search space and you find a path where the drone flies over the bridge Mm -hmm. and satisfies the constraint of no water. So that's what we did in in those uh, experiments. Mm -hmm. And so basically if you were using like, okay, it's 3D. If you were using a star, Mm -hmm. that would take ages because it would want to look at all of the different possible locations that it could be within some grid resolution of what you're doing. And then you can improve it a little bit to because it's higher dimensions Mm -hmm. by using rapidly random exploring trees. That's right. RRT, yes. And that would be a bit quicker because it would look randomly in a lot of directions. Exactly that. But the thing is, you're still exploring a gigantic volume that is not going to lead to a solution. That's right. And that's why this is a bit better because you can strain it and say all of those directions are not useful. You've got to get to the bridge. Mm. And then it goes right to there, finds its way, goes across the bridge, and then it can. Is that correct? Yes, correct, yeah. All right. So why not use some sort of map software like Google Maps to just plot a location that goes across a grid? Why not use like a street level representation? That, yeah, and, and I mean, that's a question that I often get. But uh, I mean, he, remember that what we want to deal with are situations where something has happened, something has changed. Uh, like you can imagine if there's been a hurricane and the water levels uh, are high, uh, if there's been some kind of disaster or earthquake. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, you you can't rely on these stored maps that have this topological information. The other aspect is, of course, Google Maps assumes that cars will then always drive on the roads and that all of these roads are more or less available. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we're not dealing with, you know, we want to deal with more complicated scenarios where, you know, you're not constrained to roads. If you're constrained to roads, then the problem is a little bit easier. Yes. And again, I think... The important thing to, to put the, F, the emphasis is not so much on the application domain per se, but it's really the methods that we're mm-hmm. using. And our aim is to try and make them general enough so that they work in several different applications. Mm-hmm. Now, let's see. For, um, now, what happens if your ontology does not capture 
some like what if there's an aberration? Mm. How does that work? Right. So one of the things we started to explore was this idea that you have a neural symbolic system. What does it mean? And it basically means you have your symbolic system, which is your ontology, but you okay. also have your learning system. Okay. And, and they shouldn't be completely detached from each other. Actually, they should be very tightly interwoven. Oh, what a beautiful concept. Uh, and okay. what what I I think is interesting is when your ontology is unable to capture something, uh, the question is whether you can learn about that. Mm-hmm. Likewise, when you, for example, use deep learning methods, let's say you, you try and use, I don't know, an autoencoder, and you see that you're not able to... Uh... So you're using an autoencoder. Right, so... Um, Let's say, for example, you use an autocoder, and you see you're not able to reconstruct things very well. That can give you an indication that there's something that you don't know. Okay, just a quick aside. So an autoencoder, it's going to be some way of getting from, like, the raw information to some set of features? Uh, No, actually, what you try and do is you try and recreate your input. Oh, okay. But you do it with fewer... Yes. With less data. So what the autoencoder has to learn is what are the most critical features for me to give a good reconstruction. Uh, would it be kind of analogous to principal component analysis? Are you figuring out the highest resolution bits in the... Uh, yes, but what principal PCA tries to do... Uh, well, yes. It, yeah, you could say that it, it is analogous to PCA. Um, as long as you keep all your principal components. Mm. Okay. All right, so back to the autoencoder. So yeah. we're using an autoencoder for... So let's say if you try and use an autoencoder in, in order to recognize objects in a, in, a, in a scene. Okay. And you're doing this unsupervised, so you actually don't know what objects that you're dealing with, but you're trying to find out which, which features in the data give me the best representation. Mm. Um, some, you can imagine some pixels or some some regions will be better reconstructed than others. Correct, yeah. Yeah? Uh, Now, what you could do is you can look at those areas that have a bad reconstruction. Yes. And you can think, my neural network is having difficulties with these areas. Mm -hmm. Either because there's something with the data that's difficult or something with the way I set up my network but it's having some difficulties dealing with this. Okay. So then you can go to the ontology. So your network is not expressive in the ways that represent that part. Exactly. Okay. And you can go to the ontology and you can say to the, again, look at the ontology and say, see what the ontology has been able to identify. What are the relations between the objects that have been identified? And if some of the objects you know about and some of them you don't, you can just simply look at the ontology and find out some some more contextual information. Mm-hmm. Like, we don't know about shores when we're starting to do the image re- recognition, when we're starting to recognize objects. We've never even thought about shores. Yeah. But what we see is that we get a high reconstruction error around like the boundary between land and water, yeah. we ask the ontology, what do you think this is? And the ontology says, well, I know that between land and water you have shores, so let's just label it like that. Gotcha. It's a really cool thing. 
to be able to predict from your knowledge where you have the gap. Yes. So it's basically trying to know what you don't know. Mm -hmm. What's the future of this work? So um, there are a couple of things that we want to do. First of all, we want to investigate how we can deepen these neuro-symbolic architectures. Mm -hmm. And what's what I think is really interesting is, again, being able to be much more explicit about what you know and what you don't know. Uh, and if you can get systems that can do this, you can all of a sudden get systems that are much better at interaction and much better at interaction with non-experts. And for us, we really want to study that interaction as well. So in my lab, we have both machine perception, which is one leg, and interaction, which is the other. Now, I've spent a long time talking about the machine perception part, but we're interested in robots and we're interested in how robots interact with humans. And whether you're even dealing on a symbolic level or not, we are also interested in understanding how robots can be aware of the interaction and the quality of interaction. So this is a secondary direction that we have. And for us, we want to really deploy these systems in real life settings. So it can be not only on the street, not only in office environments, but also in our homes. And for us, we also want to explore how these systems can work to help people. So really looking at special end user groups. So I, I believe that the integration of AI and robotics can lend to a number of really exciting application domains. We mentioned one about keeping track of objects. We mentioned another one about satellite images. Um, but all of these have the same components in the background. They have uh, this integration between high-level reasoning and a symbolic system and low-level perception and action. And if we can make systems like this, I think we can make systems that can interact better with humans, whatever the domain. Thank you. Thank you. And that's it for today. As always, you can access plenty more podcast episodes on our website at robohub.org forward slash podcast. And if you have any feedback, comments, questions, or suggestions for the podcast team, our president, Audro, is always happy to hear from you. Just send him an email at audro.nash at robohub.org. We'll be back with another episode in two weeks' time. Until then, goodbye. Semantics with Robohub, the podcast for news and views on robotics. <laughs>